welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. This is the Tuesday Not So Deep Dive episode on Chit Chat Money, a show where we go over an individual stock for about 30 to 45 minutes. If you do not know a stock before listening to this or the stock that we're covering on the show, this is a great episode for you. Uh, If you are an expert on the company already, this is probably not the one you want to listen to. You're going to want to hit our Thursday episodes. Unless you want to critique us. Unless you want to critique us because this the, the, the way we do these shows is we get about a week of research and then we go in for our first look and decide if we want to research further. So we're kind of at the beginning of the research process, but we think it's really great. I just want to clear that up because some people get confused on what the type of shows are, but we're talking Brookfield Asset Management today. That was a recommendation from one of the listeners. And I got to say that listener gave us a big homework assignment because it's yeah. a hard one to understand. We have Brad Freeman on the show today. Brad, Ryan, uh, what was the difficulty level as well, I'm trying to understand this stuff? I want to I want to take a moment to apologize for giving you guys this homework assignment. And to the listener that recommended this, shame on you. Not really. <laughs> Thank you. Well, uh, thank you for the rec. We always appreciate the recommendations, but this was we, we learned, I mean, difficult probably, to understand. Yeah, we probably learned a lot. I mean, Brad, how, was it difficult for you to learn about this one as well? I mean... It's so there are there are AI ML black boxes and then there are asset manager black boxes and this seems like an asset manager black box but I, I mean it's 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 a fascinating company I'll just I'll leave it there yeah I mean great shareholder returns over the last few decades so yeah. you know there's something there and we're gonna let Ryan try to describe the company try um, but before we get into it we need to talk about our sponsor for this show Masterworks uh, Masterworks is a well, I would describe an art investing platform um, with, you know, an ability for, say, an individual like ourselves to invest in blue chip art. If you didn't know, art, contemporary art pieces have outpaced the S&P 500 total return from 1995 to 2020 by 164%. And that is a time when the market was doing quite well. And it's also incredibly stable. When the markets plummeted, in 2008 to 2009, and the S&P tanked 57% peak to trough, this asset only lost 27% of its value. So that's a shocking you, stat, the the market outperformance for the last 25 years. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, I mean, Masterworks is just a great way. If you're interested in investing in blue chip art, um, I would just... It's a cool way to do it, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. It has over 400,000 members. It is a good way to tuck away a portion of your wealth if you're looking to, and this is kind of funny that we're doing an alternative assets thing here, uh, assets manager for the show. This is a different way if you're looking to, you know, if you can't get into real estate, if you don't want to get into cryptocurrency. um, This is your way to be an alternative asset manager. Exactly. This is what they say here. Unlike NFTs or cryptocurrency, art is a real tangible asset, just like real estate and Masterworks lets you easily do that. So let me get the code we have here. You want to go to masterworks.art slash CCM. The link is in the show notes. You can get a discount on your, 
whatever, you know, you can get a discount no, on you your get investment. Priority. priority access. Excuse priority me. Access. Yes. Ryan, Ryan is getting that right. You can get priority access on your, uh, I don't know, investments. And it's a pretty cool thing to do. It's like, it also seems like a fun thing to do as well. Mm. So if you're interested in blue chip art and you want to get good returns, I go check them out. Brad, Masterworks.art. Wait, wait, let me say, I got to say it twice here. Masterworks.art slash CCM. Link is in the show notes. See important regulation A disclosures at masterworks.io slash CD. Brad, what do you want to add here? Yeah, no, I, I just think it, it's a wonderful way to to diversify with, with something that is both reliable and stable. This is a... Uh, uh, this is art. This is fine art. These are Banksy's and Picasso's. This is not NFTs and, and that kind of thing. So I just wanted to get that point across. Um, and, and I'm actually on my newsletter also partnering with them because because I, I feel the same way about them in terms of nice things to say. And and uh, so, yeah, excited about that and, and just a lot of nice things to say about this company. They, if you want to good. claim yourself as an owner of the Mona Lisa or a Picasso. Maybe not the Mona Lisa. I don't know if that's up for sale, but uh, the uh, it's just they're they're a pretty reputable firm. So if this is not like a sketchy organization at all. They're definitely legit and they're a great way to, I don't know, probably the best way out there. If you're not really rich and wealthy, which you're listening to the show, I, I'm assuming you're not. Or even uh, if you are. Or even if you are, it's a great way to invest in blue chip art. All right, Ryan, introduce Brookfield Asset Management or otherwise known as maybe BAM, B-A-M or Brookfield, just Brookfield maybe. Yeah. So they are, as we all alluded to earlier, difficult to understand. And so I've got a quote here from the Financial Times that I think encapsulates them pretty well. They say, what exactly Brookfield is and how it operates is maddeningly difficult to ascertain. To unpack the Canadian group's accounts is to discover not so much a company as a giant triangular jigsaw board that spreads across the world and covers assets worth $500 billion. Uh, it's, It's more than $500 billion now. That article was written a while ago. But Uh, I think that was a good way to describe it. So I'll try to kind of put my own spin on it. Brookfield Asset Management is one of the world's largest alternative asset managers. And when I say largest, that includes 180,000 employees, $690 billion in AUM or assets under management. And it means that they can invest across virtually any asset class. So they've got private investments, they've got uh, real estate investments, public equities, I believe as well. And they focus their investments in a few sectors. So the sectors they talk about are renewable power and transition, infrastructure, private equity, real estate, and reinsurance. Uh, And the interesting part about each of those investments categories is that they are all, I believe all of them are public companies in and of themselves as well. So Brookfield Asset Management actually owns portions of those businesses. It doesn't own them outright. So Brookfield Asset Management owns 63% of the private equity business, 30% of the infrastructure business, 61% of the renewable power company, and 51% of the property business. Um, Brad, do you have anything? Would would Liberty be a good comp for this company and and, and how they kind of do that? Yeah, I think a little bit because Liberty doesn't have like outside LPs unless I'm wrong. I'm no Liberty expert. That's sort of convoluted structure, I think is reminiscent of how Liberty used to operate, but and it's like a hybrid of Liberty and KKR. It's and flexible capital too. Like yeah. you can, you can move capital from one place to the other, a lot like Liberty in that sense. But uh, they did that. They had to like fund one of the real estate. Uh, uh, there have funds. been asset swaps before where yeah. one of their companies sells something to another one of their companies, which is a very strange thing. Um that kind of, I think they call it recycling capital. Um, but anyway, the uh, each each of those 
businesses, so those subsidiaries, also have limited partnerships that are associated with them. So limited partnerships are, are just private uh, a, a private funding source, essentially. So you as a shareholder are giving them public funding sources. Um, and then they also raise money from big institutional investors. Uh, and so if you're a public shareholder, you participate as technically the general partner. So you're getting those fees from say a pension investing in that limited partnership. Yeah. And it, you're not, uh, you're not getting a, uh, what's it called? The, you're not getting a form with a uh, blank on the form that you send out K one. You're not getting a K one. You're getting oh, a typical, right, right, right. Uh, you're treated like a typical shareholder, but the, uh, it's some of the institutional investors include, uh, like the, is it the, is it the Saudi wealth fund? Uh, I think it's Qatar. They're, they're big with the Qataris. Qatar, um, big pension funds, uh, just huge institutions like that. And then, they're in Canada. So Canadian, some big Canadian pension funds are, uh, with them. And then the, the revenue generation is through management fees and performance fees. So like a typical uh, uh, limited partnership. And then the uh, I should also mention that they primarily use the funds to invest in hard assets. So it's not necessarily something that's buying a ton of digital businesses. They're making investments in very in physical properties often. So like office buildings or mines or land it's very i guess uh oh, durable toll, in that toll sense. Road, yeah toll roads um data centers stuff like that yeah uh but i'll talk about the history because this one's pretty fascinating so brookfield actually began out of a family feud and a 15 million dollar inheritance so i'm not talking about family feud the show i'm like there was a feud in a certain family uh so samuel bromfman was the founder of the seagram company and he made a fortune selling alcohol during the prohibition days at one point around 1952, he locked his two nephews, Peter and Edward, out of the Seagram offices and forced them to sell their shares at a discount. So I'm not exactly sure how that worked. That's all the color I could get on it. But basically, that was uh, the, the family feud. And then after selling their shares, Peter and Edward Bronfman teamed up with a shrewd accountant named Jack Cockwell uh, and used their inheritance to acquire a Brazilian electrical utility company called Brascan or Brascan, I think. Um, and apparently it was a really messy takeover deal. And Brascan had just been nationalized by the Brazilian government. So it had, it was infused with a whole bunch of cash. And so the the brothers and Jack Cockwell used that cash to buy pretty much anything and everything. So that it, it's things like breweries, sports teams, forests, mines, real estate brokers, investment banks. They were just uh, acquiring assets left and right. By the nineteen by nineteen eighty, the brothers were two of the richest people in Canada, and now today the company consists of dozens of uh, separate yet also intertwined public and private companies. So you'll, if you're digging through their annual report, you're probably going to be lost. Hopefully that provides some context around how the business works. Yeah, but there is, yeah, there is going to still be some opaqueness no matter how deep you dig, unless you want to spend months on this, reading the thousands of pages across all the different filings, which I will, uh, you know, we didn't do that for this show. Sorry to say, I don't think anyone does that really. But let me hit industry and competition. Pretty, pretty simple here. BAM operates in the alternative asset industry, which is a vague definition, but it basically means stuff like private equity, venture capital, real estate, infrastructure, renewables, stuff like that. So anything alternative to the public markets. The industry actually has an AUM of $9 trillion that grew by over $1 trillion in 2021. 
And BAM has $364 billion in fee-bearing capital. And Ryan mentioned above, what's the total? $690, $690 billion in total AUM. Big BAM, um, Tam. Sorry, go ahead, Brad. Big BAM, Tam. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and competitors include KKR. We actually did a show on KKR. If you're interested in these companies, I would listen to our interview with John Rotanti on KKR. He gives a great definition of one of those. Um, they're a little bit different. They're more asset-like, but... They, uh, yeah, I would listen to that if you're trying to understand these businesses better. There's Blackstone. There's, I think people have heard of Blackstone. They're one of the biggest ones out there. There's the Carlisle Group. Someone like Bridgewater, who is one of the giant hedge funds, is also technically within this industry. The list really goes on and on and on. There's tons of competition. But I'll let Brad talk about management and ownership, which the your, yours, uh management and ownership and balance sheet were one of the toughest homework assignments here. So yeah, hard to, hard to understand. Normally, I get to spend like 15, 20 minutes doing putting together my sections and, and I'm good to go. And you guys have the hard work. But this was I mean, they don't believe in proxy statements, apparently. And, and so finding ownership data that, that's somewhat reliable was a little bit difficult. So I went I went basically to all the third party sources and, and got a, a running a mean or an average. They didn't even list ownership in their annual filings. Um, so it, yeah, t- tough to find. But according to all these sites, they were right around 11% insider ownership of the company. Institutional ownership, which has been growing over the last few years, was about 75% of the firm, Royal Bank of Canada, and Vanguard near the top of that list. But Brookfield is actually listed as the top owner of, of their own company, which uh, which I, I guess is just another interesting quirk of, of being that, that asset manager and owning all of these subsidiaries and having minority stakes in all of them. Um, so, and then, so yeah, no, no, no proxies, none of that. Um, so if, if you're listening to this and, and, and there's somewhere that you found reliable insider info, please let me know because I could not find anything. But um, in terms of the management team, so CEO is Bruce Flat. He has been in that role since 2002 and he was with the company since 1990. So 32-year tender, uh, casual, uh, so so lengthy to say the least. A 71% Glassdoor rating, just a few hundred reviews. Um, th- th- I mean, this company is not is not one to put their name in the ring for culture awards and for employer um, em- em- employer uh, environment awards. So so there's really not a lot to say there. But I mean, when you have a CEO in place for 32 years, I think that speaks volumes. But um, the CFO is Nicholas Goodman. Another lengthy tenure, been with the company since 2010. He was the CEO of Brookfield Renewable Partners, which is one of those uh, minority ownership subsidiaries that we've been talking about. Uh, and he's been the CFO for several years. And then, I mean, you just go down the list of, of all of these departmental CEOs in the C-suite, and it's 20-year tenure, 15-year tenure, 20-year tenure. I mean, I mean, it's these people, this is, yeah, this is a trend that we really like to see, and we don't see very often in public markets anymore. Um, so, so refreshing and encouraging to me personally. Well, they're especially, making they're making a lot of money. So, and especially that, non non founders too. And yeah, speaking of flat, I'll give a reference to the stock price performance since he took over. I think well, I'm looking at Coifin here, and it only goes back to 1997, but stocks up five thousand percent since then. So clearly, he's done quite a good job in creating shareholder value in that time. So there's, you know, he's got some fans. Um, I'm sure the long-term investors are fans. I'm sure he's made money since he's a long owner, long-term owner in the company. But it is quite fascinating to see them be able to keep almost, maybe not everyone, but a majority of their executive team and managers around for 20 years. That does not happen very often. Um, and I- there's also this is kind of important as well. And I want to have seen it if I didn't read the financial times article, but there's also a company uh, 
within the company, I guess, called Partners Limited, which uh, is the controlling shareholder. So uh, they say they have the power to override the votes of every other Brookfield shareholder combined. And it's basically, I believe, 40 financial partners that uh, most of them are not disclosed. So it's like 40 individuals or institutions. And the it was designed- flat, Flats in there, right? The CEO? Yeah. Apparently it was designed so that people could invest alongside the company, but it's also, uh, it's the most powerful entity. So they, they have total control. Yeah. And he said inside, it's more of on top, right? Just a few Russian oligarchs. In, in a maybe on of, the <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. We just have the Qatari uh, crown yeah. in there. He's no big deal. That shouldn't cause any geopolitical. Unnamed, an- anonymous. It's, it's all yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They have the power to appoint nine of the 16 directors. So and they have yeah, special they have control. Rights, and it's so. like uh, they own the dual class. There's a dual class. So basically, yeah, they have all the power. It's for you. Credentials to advance, confidence to stand out in your career. At Regent University, you'll join more than 30,000 world changers making a difference in high demand fields. Pursue your bachelor's, master's, or doctorate online or on campus in Virginia Beach. Your degree from top-ranked Regent University is waiting. So is the world you will elevate. Say yes to your purpose and position yourself for a brighter future. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. Regent.edu slash learn more. All right, I'll hit an evaluation. This is a tough one, too. Market cap is $77 billion, and ticker is BAM. However, market cap is... I say pretty irrelevant for a, um, an asset manager that is has the that invests stuff themselves and has a lot of debt. So the enterprise value is hard to calculate. And I'll say I asked some, uh, various people uh, how they calculate enterprise value and they all did it differently. So I think this is kind of a build your own adventure here on enterprise value. But I came up with something around $69 billion. If you exclude investment properties or include them, that can change it a lot because I have $100 billion worth of investment properties. You can also exclude or include non-recourse debt, which I don't know what to do with that. Do you want to explain that a little? Because only it's what, only 6% of the debt belongs to the corporation? Yeah, the the corporation you are buying if you buy BAM stock, yes. Uh, However, I don't know what would technically happen. Brad will get into the details in the balance sheet, but yeah, it's technically like they 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 talk they talk they talk that up of how they have all this debt diversified across it, and it doesn't affect the parent company if one goes under. Um, but I still I, I don't know that does still makes me a bit nervous, and it is difficult to value because they own so many different things. Uh, for example, I was trying to look up these. I think Ryan mentioned them earlier, but they own you know all those other public companies worth various amounts, but they're also their own things that they manage. So it's kind of just a pyramid structure, but let me get some, not a pyramid scheme. No, it's a pyramid structure. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's not, I, I hope not. Um, but their enterprise value to net income is 5.6. And again, if you calculate your enterprise value differently, you're going to come up with slightly different numbers here. If anyone's listening to this and I'm getting away off enterprise value, then I should let me know. Um, their enterprise value to fee-related earnings, which I think is an interesting one, was 39. And fee-related earnings, I like to look at that one because it's so durable, um, especially for an alternative asset manager, because you know whatever their AUM is, they're going to be bringing that in. And then you have the cherry on top of carried interest and performance fees. And then we'll have an enterprise value to their definition of distributable earnings, which is not GAAP or it's their own thing. Their enterprise value to that 
is at 11, which I think is probably a good one to use as well. Probably the best metric. Maybe though, but I, I get nervous about what are they describing as distributable earnings? Like it's just kind of, are they pulling, you know, they, I, I don't they know. have a lot of levers they could pull, I imagine, to create distributable earnings. Exactly. So I get a bit nervous, but again, this is one of those that you got to kind of go, some of the parts, maybe um, it's harder than just doing it over a podcast. So Ryan, do you want to go earnings? Yeah, there isn't a ton to report here. So I'm going to basically go through essentially some of the same numbers that Brett did. So in 2021, BAM raised or Brookfield Asset Management raised $71 billion of capital across all of its segments. And that totaled to 690 billion. Uh, and then they generated 12.4 billion in total net income, and then 6.3 billion in distributable earnings. That was that figure that Brett talked about. Um, and distributable, distributable earnings has grown at 20% annually per share annually for the last five years. You said 20%, but you wrote 20, down 29. Sorry, 29% per share annually over the last five years. So really strong earnings growth. Um, like I said, or like Brett said, it's a little hard to tell uh, how much of those are going to be like recurrent earnings versus how much are uh, just recognized during that one year. So that's why it's important to pay attention to that fee-related earnings figure. And then the last thing I'll say is they, they paid out 88 cents a share in dividends this year. 41% of those dividends were in the form of a special dividend, so sort of one-time thing. Uh, and that came out to a 2%, roughly a 2% dividend yield. Um, so, uh, some, some returns to shareholders there. There isn't a whole lot of share repurchases though. No, that's not how they like to roll. Uh, Brad, do you want to hit balance sheets? Sure. So a lot of cash, uh, 12.7 billion is, is kind of expected, uh, but a lot of debt as well. So 10.8 billion in corporate borrowings that that's what's called, um, the recourse debt where, uh, Brookfield asset management would actually be liable in, in terms of, of default and in terms of delinquency and things like that. Um, but then they've got another 165 billion in non-recourse debt, which Brett was talking about. It's spread out across all of these other entities that they have. Where it's it's just it's kind of another layer of, of legal protection. Um, in term, I mean, as non-recourse would hint at that there, you, you can't um, you can't go after Brookfield Asset Management, um, their balance sheet, or anything like that, or, or their assets. In, in in the case of a default, you have to go through one of these smaller subsidiaries, which offers another layer of protection for them. But still $165 billion in debt really, I mean, it, it does raise the bar for continued profitability and cash flow for all of these um, entities, which has been extremely consistent and extremely reliable. So not, not really a precarious um, uh, dependency here, I, I don't think. Um, and, and that's honestly, uh, well, they've, they've also got, neg- they've got $23 billion in net payables. So they, they use accounts payable to finance a lot of their operations. But um, other than that, not, not a lot to talk about. Yeah, and the yeah the non-recourse stuff it is like there is that protection, but they own interest in these other stocks. So if those go to zero, doesn't the value of BAM go down? But the so debt I, isn't there. Definitely. But the value goes. The, down. I mean the debt. I mean one way or is another, it, there, though, it like, is associated. With I don't the company. know. Do you? I don't. Do we know for a fact that it's not going to hurt them? No. It, I, I mean, if well, there's, I think there's if a they, default, that that would definitely. I I think it would. I mean. They can't be. They can't be entirely shielded. I don't. I don't know uh, for sure. But but to me, all this means is um, if there are liabilities or claims beyond what the assets are on of these kind of um, these junior companies under the Brookfield Asset Management, then they can't. They can't claim more after they've taken everything from that on, under the, the the entire parent company or the umbrella. True. So, so yeah. there there are they are liable, but 
it caps the liability. Yeah. And hopefully that's good, but I yeah. still I still think there's uncertainty with that. Maybe that's I agree. Hundred percent. Obviously, yeah. Obviously, if one of these companies defaults on their debt that Brookfield Asset Management owns a stake of, it's going to impact Brookfield Asset Management one way or the other. Yeah. It just even though it be... doesn't go directly to them, even though they aren't the one defaulting on it. Yeah. True. This episode is brought to you by KPMG. As a business leader, how can you innovate, build trust, and move forward in a digital era? KPMG can help by bringing together the right talent and technologies, generating insights that spark opportunities. To explore their thinking, visit read.kpmg.us slash opportunities. All right. Anecdotal evidence, Brad, anything? Yeah, uh, I do not have any intimate knowledge of Brookfield Asset Management. <laughs> yeah, you're, uh, not, you're not one of the 200,000 employees. So it's, no. that's, that's basically all the anecdotal evidence you'd have. Yeah, no, I have not done any uh, personal deals with Brookfield Asset Management, but I did read a story about them acquiring a New York City office building from Jared Kushner. Not entirely sure what the relationship is there. There's also, I think you're about to point to this, uh, they've been in on some any huge deal that needs financing, I feel like you could probably find a, a Brookfield subsidiary somewhere in there. Yeah. And this deal was weird. Like they, they, they guaranteed a hundred years of payments I don't, on this building. Um, and I think it was like office buildings during the pandemic. So they needed a buyer. I don't know. It's, it, it was strange, but anecdotally, the articles I've read about them, either from the financial times or bloggers or, the historical ones, be honest, give me a bad feel. Yeah, I'm just a little bit. Yeah, I they don't. They like they they are barely. If you, if an analyst asks bad questions, like say maybe we're asking on the show, or not bad questions. Uh, they ask Pointed. a question that is maybe going to be a critical one. They'll get kicked out of any sort of analyst events and will basically get banned from asking questions ever again. Which I think is quite the red flag. Um, but well, I guess we'll get that later in the show, future growth opportunities, Brad, what were your thoughts on this one? Yeah, just a quick note. I mean, I just, I listened to green thumb and this is a good segue into what I'm going to talk about, but green thumb, which is a cannabis grower and their, their earnings report and just the Q and a and, and how sharp and pointed and rude these questions were. It's just, I mean, it's, th- this is respect earned. And, and, and I think, um, I think that that's good to point out that it's, it's not inherent that, that these earnings calls are amicable, but, um, for future growth opportunities, um, I'd, I'd love to see them explore the cannabis industry. I mean, I, I feel like they could, with this legal structure, figure out a backdoor way in before the regulatory tide really turns and before a lot of people can. Multiples are dirt cheap, even before regulation. These companies are all starved for cash and the industry is poised for 20% growth for a decade. Um, I don't really think there are many other opportunities like that for this company to um, to uh, to kind of embrace a new vertical. And, and I think this would make a ton of sense if they could figure it out. But more generally speaking, I mean, the world of M&A has gotten a lot nicer to them over the last 18 months. I mean, the tumultuous times we've had in growth stock land and in stock markets overall, what that does is with this company that is flush with cash, it just makes multiples a lot more compelling for them to go be a serial acquirer and, and to add assets under management. So um, future growth opportunities, probably, they, they I, I don't know for sure, but I'm assuming that they, they've been a little bit more cautious than they would have otherwise been over the last few years. Just with where multiples got, and and with how, um, and with yeah, which is I'll, I'll leave it there with how mark with how stretch multiples got, but now that's reverting, and it seems like they'd have an opportunity to lean back in, um, to kind of drive inorganic growth. Yeah, I mean the growth opportunities 
for an alternative asset manager, pretty much unlimited because um, yeah. you can pretty much invest in any vertical. So cannabis, cannabis requires the capex for the warehouse, not the warehouses, the greenhouses and that type of stuff too. That seems that that greenhouses and all that or the warehouse. I don't know what the exact definitions are, but those type of things could be right up their alley, right? Yeah, no, a lot, a lot of, a lot of indoor real estate and grow houses, and, and I, I just, it feels like if if their C suite is willing to pallet being invested in the cannabis industry, which is not a guarantee at this point in time, uh, it it just it makes a lot of sense to me, but um, but I could be wrong. Okay, Ryan, uh, my growth opportunity is spinning off the asset management business. Now, I'll be honest, I thought this was its own thing going into this. Um, cause it is called Brookfield asset management. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not sure what's left of Brookfield asset management minus the asset management. Well, no, it's the, the actual direct holdings, things they have. The yes. direct investments. No, I, I, I got that now, but going into it, I wasn't sure what it was. So they actually did talk about this Brookfield's management team, uh, said they're considering spinning it off because they think it could potentially be worth $75 billion on its own. Um, the, uh, according to Forbes, post-separation, Brookfield Asset Management will focus on growing its newly launched reinsurance and investment operations through $50 billion net of debts, directly owned assets across real estate, infrastructure, renewable energy, credit, and private equity. So I forgot the reinsurance thing. I saw that. <laughs> I guess we didn't even get to that in the show. Yeah. Yeah. So they, I mean, that is one of their size advantages is they can when certain industry, they get opportunities that others might not. And so reinsurance, big reinsurance, it's kind of the Berkshire effect uh, is something that has obviously high capital barriers to entry. Um, yeah. yeah, but it's risky. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's risky. But, you better yeah. be good at insurance. They, they said basically that they, they're considering spinning this asset off because uh, the current investment sentiment is that people like asset light models. And so that would create one. Uh, so would this be all of say the $364 billion in fee earning AUM, basically stuff like that, those funds. Is that what we're, I think so. Okay. Stuff like I think that. so. They I'm haven't, they, sure. haven't final, they haven't finalized, I guess. As soon as you, I, someone said this on Twitter too. It's like, as soon as you un, think you understand Brookfield, they restructure. Yeah. Well, that sounds Makes me comfortable as an investor. <laughs> now, all right. Well, I got mine. Uh, same stuff, but apparently they're in on the Twitter deal. Uh, they're part of the funding for Musk. Uh, Two hundred fifty million in there. We'll see if that goes through. But five hundred. Five hundred. Okay. Uh, but in all seriousness, that that that's really nothing for their size. But in all seriousness, data centers is a big growth driver, and it's right at their wheelhouse. And that should be a steadily growing industry, either as someone who is leasing stuff to AWS, Azure. Oracle, uh, GCP, whoever, Facebook. Uh, they're rumored to be buying Switch, which is a data center company that is valued. The stock is valued at $7.5 billion right now. When it comes down to it, they just need more money into these deals and to get acceptable ROIs. Data centers, if the multiples have come down, maybe they can get a lot of money into these things at acceptable valuations. It's not super exciting. But that's not what they're looking for. They're they're looking for these leveraged uh, buyouts of these things, and just going to generate a lot of cash from them. All right, highlights and lowlights. Brad, what do you like and dislike about this business? Yeah, a little redundant for me, but I have to just I have to I have to mention it again. When you have a CEO that's been there for thirty two years, and you have every single executive that it seems like has been there for more than ten years, um, that that's special and, and kind of t- speaks to um, maybe how uh, amazing their compensation packages are, as you guys astutely pointed out. Uh, but also, I mean, how, how good the culture is. These 
these people are, are hot commodities and I'm sure they've had offers left and right to, to move laterally or upwards with other companies and, and they're still here or they're still, they're still there, there, I should say. Um, so, so that, that is uh, a, a highlight. I, I love, I love hints into strong culture. Uh, I, I know it's, it's not super tangible and it, it's pretty qualitative, but it, it still makes me a little bit more comfortable to own a company. Um, so, yeah. Oh, and then I'm sorry. And then low lights. Uh, so with, with that kind of, um, respect and admiration for management and their tenures. Um, and then kind of combining that with, uh, and, and I'm quoting from an article that I read, uh, the, the, this is the CEO. So flat saying we buy troubled assets and stressed things. So, um, that that's phenomenal, but it does raise the bar for, or I mean, sorry, that that's, uh, the upside there is phenomenal, I should say, but it raises the bar for, for execution and continued execution. And while we have a very long track record to kind of rest on uh, with this company specifically, uh, past performance, as as everyone says in their earnings calls, doesn't guarantee future success or future results. And and this um, this strategy to embrace kind of uh, the, the black sheep in terms of assets and in terms of what's on the market, I, it does it raises the bar for for management to continue to be a company strength. Yeah, I mean, interest rates. I guess I'll get into that in line. But interest rates were were, were the returns just interest rates have gone down the last three decades. I, that's a big question for me, Ryan. Ryan, what's your highlights and lowlights? Highlights. I, I I think they must have an absolutely incredible legal team. They um, gotta get paid well. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I honestly question whether the executives understand their own legal structures. Um, <laughs> no, no, I don't think anyone understands. It's like a big bank. No one understands. Like, it's does anyone actually understand every single part of JP Morgan? Like that SpongeBob no. gift. Like imagination. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. exactly. It's it's a I I don't know. Does Jamie Dimon understand every single thing that's going on at JP Morgan? No. And that's I don't know. It's probably the same, right? Yeah, I'm sure. The uh the, some of the actual highlights besides the incredible Eagle team is that their size does give them opportunities that other firms might not have access to. Uh they also have so many different components to their business that I think they're easily able to attract capital. Um, so when they need to raise money, they're able to do it. I mean, $71 billion this year is a, a ton of money. Um, and then also their dependence on hard assets, I would think is more resilient through periods of high inflation. So maybe there's some durability in that sense. Low lights for me. I put here, WTF do I own? I, I don't know as a shareholder what exactly I'm owning. Um, and I'm sure if I did maybe enough digging, I'd, I'd understand it, but I don't know where the capital flows. I don't know, um, for one, that that Partners Limited or, or Limited Partners, whatever, runs the company. Like you as a shareholder are, are yeah, not, I like how the, not gonna matter. I like how Flat said, no, it doesn't really, we don't do much with it, but it's there. It's like, yeah. well, why is it there? Yeah. And then- Cause. Yeah. yeah just, I just because, don't understand. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's over there. I have a hard time reading where like, where the money's going. No, no, no one knows. I mean, like we can give you this homework assignment. You get back to us in 2030. You'll like, know. could, <laughs> I don't know. could be, could there be self-dealing under the hood? I don't know. I have well, absolutely I there, no idea. I think there is. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but there also could be impaired assets here that hadn't, you know what I mean? That's kind of, yeah. All right. Mine, my highlights, there's been a great tailwind into the industry. Fee-bearing capital is rising, and it looks like a strong track record of creating shareholder value. Now, just looking at the stock price is tough. You can't just invest because the stock has gone up over the long term. But real estate and physical assets probably will do good with inflation. I would think 
also they have all these real estate assets. If need be, they can sell them, but that's tough. It's not like selling a stock. It's in a liquid market. You need to find a buyer, especially with these huge properties. I mean, there's not that many buyers out there. Um, low lights, like you guys mentioned, opaque. There was a journalist that said looking at them was like trying to watch a basketball game with the lights out, which I thought was a good analogy. So that's how I kind of felt trying to learn the business. I got nowhere. Also, rising interest rates make me a bit nervous with leveraged companies and alternative asset managers. Here's a quote from Institutional Investor, um, which is a magazine that covers stuff like these alternative asset managers. Um, Epstein, which this, not Jeffrey, this is a different Epstein. Epstein said institutional investors have been drawn to higher yielding asset classes like private equity as a result of low interest rates and monetary intervention, which have made the benchmark yield curve consistently low over the past few years. Lower yields have also prompted higher use leverage to increase portfolio returns. So that may be reversing. And that's just a low light for me if interest rate rise, interest rates rise significantly relative to where they have been over the past decade. What does that do? Well, yeah, I have no idea. But the in in the short time that interest rates have been rising, this has been the place to be and not uh, sure, sure, sure. Uh, I guess they don't have daily marks. I don't know. Yeah. Real, the real estate, look, the real estate prices are going to go down if real if interest rates rise significantly. That's a fact. Yeah, but are, I, I don't know. Are they disposing of them? I don't know. Or is it just they're leasing them? Oh, I think there's a mix of both. All right, bold case. Brad, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think... So um, others' pain is their gain. That that is That is the bull case. So... Brett, you alluded to this. I mean, the last, uh, how, however, you could say the last decade has been extremely easy in, in terms of uh, M&A landscape and in terms of uh, cash flowing and in terms of just very, very easy money. And and this company doesn't need easy money in order to, to survive, in order to thrive. And now that that's gone away, I think this will take out a lot of the competition um, they're, they're, they're dealing with in terms of uh, the M&A landscape. And it's going to open the door for them to do a lot more um, and for them to kind of bolster that already really impressive, uh, would you say 29% earnings compounding for the last few years, Ryan? I, I mean, that's already fantastic. Um, and I think they've got a lot of wiggle room to do a lot more um, thanks to, and this is weird to say and unfortunate for pretty much any, anyone else, but thanks to kind of this, this tumultuous, tumultuous macroeconomic backdrop. That was hard to say, but yep. Yeah. And yeah, as long as they're, it seems like they have that brand and the investors trust them. As long as their LPs trust them, they'll have a longer runway to invest in stuff than say a public market investor who has seen maybe stuff, you know, collapse or I I don't know, you know, they just most likely given that they're in the privates and they don't get the daily marks and all that stuff, they hopefully have a longer runway to execute on the strategy and given their track record compared to any other alternative asset manager who maybe started up 10 years ago, they maybe that maybe give them advantage as well. Um, Ryan, what are your thoughts? I think the bull case is pretty uh, straightforward, I guess. They, they continue to increase their AUM base uh, and they're able to generate their stated target of 12 to 15% returns. Some, I guess, maybe short-term potential uh, upside scenarios are is if the asset management spinoff creates some value and then if the reinsurance business grows, if they're able to kind of have success 
with that whole process, uh, I, I think that would be a lot of upside for shareholders. Yeah. All right. Mine is simple. More fees, more carrot interest. And carrot interest is just those, okay, uh, I'm going to get it wrong, but it's just, say, performance fees earned that they haven't realized from their investor funds. Um, so that's kind of those, I don't know. It's just like the performance fees. So the, 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 the management fees are what they're getting in, say, I don't know, that 2%, 1%, whatever it is. I think it's like their average is 0.9%. But yeah, more fees, more carried interest, and then more gains from asset sales. That's the name of the game here. And just managing the liquidity. Um, if their AUM grows and they don't make bad decisions, things will be fine. All right, bear case, Brad, thoughts? Yeah, so the black box of, of, of asset management and ownership, um, this is very general and, and a very general bear case assumption, but the lack of understanding um, that clearly we all have for this company and clearly what everyone has for this company um, kind of manifests itself in, um, I don't want to say complacency or negligence, but just, um, but just maybe some off balance sheet arrangements that that are a little shady, and maybe some other things that pop up, and 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 there's no indication of this happening at all. But when you have this little understanding of the inner workings of a company, I think that has to be the bare case of this uncertainty kind of manifests itself in a negative risk rather than a positive one. Yeah, yeah, I never like when whenever a company almost intentionally makes things feel complex it it i instinctually think they're hiding something exactly berkshire hathaway could do that but they do the opposite and they just lay it out for you so why does it bam do that uh i guess the two things i'm afraid of if i were a shareholder here uh, one would be that there are assets or there are certain relationships like uh maybe relationships is a bad word, arrangements that that are under the hood that I can't see that could potentially blow up. Um, and then the second one is that management is self-dealing and I can't tell uh, and potentially taking capital or a disproportionate amount of capital that should potentially belong to shareholders. Um, I just I would have a hard time figuring it out, which means it's it's difficult for me to be a shareholder i guess that's foreshadowing into my more or less interested but yeah and also the bear case is simple it's the opposite of what we were saying on the bull case is less fees less carried interest and less and asset losses that's that's the name of the game here it's kind of you're yeah you know the management doesn't do well it's worth saying that they have done an absolutely tremendous job for shareholders mm-hmm. so we we're kind of looking at it with a cynical view but uh thus far it's been remarkable. Yeah. And we're just, we do that because that's the point of finding the downside scenarios. It doesn't mean we necessarily believe that's going to happen. It's just kind of trying to do a little scenario plan. They've also, I should mention, bought Oak Tree or a majority stake in Oak Tree Management, which is what Howard Marks runs. And that has done really, really well for them. Um, so another good purchase. So it's interesting. Uh, but my bear case, I don't, like you guys said, I don't think anyone actually understands what they are buying, even the insiders. There could be hidden liabilities. I also want to ask the question, what happens if slash when interest rates rise significantly? Does AUM get pulled out of alternatives? I Doubtful, at least in the short run. Do real estate prices go down? I think so. And does it become harder to finance LBOs, which is leverage buyouts? I think almost assuredly. Elon so, doesn't think so. Sorry, what'd you say, Brad? Elon doesn't think so. Full speed oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Well, once, yeah. When you leverage against the best asset in the world, type of stock, <laughs> and, uh, 
but I mean, that's just the bear cases. Was the return just interest rates falling and basically leveraging up against that? Like, uh, and if that goes in the opposite direction, does it become a headwind instead of a tailwind? I mean, that's probably my biggest concern here outside of how, uh, outside of how it's like watching a basketball game with the lights up. Um, all right. More or less interested, Brad. Yeah. Less interested. Uh, and I think you, yeah, it's for the exact same reasons why I think you guys are going to give the answer in, in 10 seconds. So I'll leave it there. Yeah. Less for me, it's just, uh, this could easily generate good returns from here. It just won't be with me as a shareholder because I don't understand it. Yeah. Less interested. Don't understand it. Uh, I'd rather invest in one of those, not, not just Berkshire Hathaway, but a Berkshire Hathaway style where you can understand yeah. what's under the hood. No, I mean, I'd rather run, I'd, I'd rather run Berkshire explicitly over this um, any day of the week uh, for the exact same reason that you mentioned with, with transparency and with betting on um, the goats, but yeah. Yeah. And the, the returns with BAM could be better. Uh, but you know, yeah, you know, don't, I don't know. It's just not something we're comfortable with owning. But at least I'll know why my returns are worse with Berkshire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. Stock for next week or two weeks from now, Brad, what are your, what is your choice? Yeah. So there's two companies really high up on my watch list that aren't in the portfolio, but that I'm very interested in owning. One of them is Shopify. And we've done an episode on that recently. And the other is Sprout Social, which we have not done an episode on recently. So I think we're going to do some, some Sprout Social action. This is a a uh, kind of like a social media marketing channel aggregator and then campaign manager. Um, that is my extremely 30,000 foot view. And, and I have a lot more digging to do, obviously, but it's, it's interesting. It just had from a quantitative perspective, from a numbers perspective, a very upbeat quarter and, and sold off. So um, there are some compelling multiple compression taking place at this point in time. And, and I think it's a great time to kind of dig in and see if it's compelling. Yeah, I, I, I kind of took a look at it this week for just, I just happened to be looking at it and it's a, it's an interesting business and it's an interesting concept that I would have thought existed and I just didn't know who was, who was doing it, but it seems to be Sprout. Yeah. All right. Good tease for next week. Thank you all for listening. Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. Let me hit Masterworks again uh, because I'm worried I did the advertisement wrong. Use masterworks.art slash ccm to check out the service it is a great service um other disclosure ryan and i are general partners at arch capital arch capital clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast again thank you all for listening we'll see you next time